Welcome to episode 34 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. Adela Rogers St. John's opens her autobiography, The Honeycomb, with a story that echoes across the body of her work. Dubbed the world's greatest girl reporter and mother confessor to Hollywood for her revelatory profiles in motion pictures, Rogers St. John's enjoyed one of the longest tenures of any woman in the American media. She wrote compelling news stories, screenplays, and novels. Adela was a triple threat with a typewriter. Her father was an illustrious litigator who brought his impressionable daughter to the courtroom as a young girl. Adela studied the defendants and the juries over the years until she honed an impeccable gut instinct that she relied upon to tell the guilty from the innocent. She began as a cub reporter for newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst's San Francisco Examiner when she was only 18 years old. She investigated current events and headline news such as the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and the trial of accused kidnapper Bruno Hauptmann. In her memoir, she recalls scouring chemists in a tri-state radius looking for the person who purchased the chloroform that was most likely used by the baby snatcher. In those days, you had to sign a register when you bought chloroform. She found one chemist who remembered selling a bottle of hat cleaning solution, which did have a high concentration of chloroform, now that he thought about it. When she watched Bruno Hauptmann in the courtroom, her gut instinct told her that he had kidnapped and killed the baby of the man that every woman in America loved. She wrote about big names in the news, but she also wrote about everyday cases of exploitation and abuse, bringing national attention to the underbelly of cinema culture. She mentions one case in particular in The Honeycomb that highlights the perils for girls at the movies. Adela's coverage of the Rosebud Baby case investigated Nickelodeon owners who lured girls backstage when they came out for a Saturday matinee. After a girl had been raped and left pregnant, police patrolled the theaters, spurred on by Adela's coverage, and an order from Mabel Walker Willebrandt, who became the first woman assistant attorney general of the United States. The last courtroom saga that she covered was the Patty Hearst trial in 1976, when Adela was a spry 82 years old. How fitting that her writing career came full circle with the Hearst family. Adela was a star maker for Photoplay magazine and wrote many insightful profiles on screen celebrities. Not only did she play a large role in making Clark Gable the king of Hollywood, she also had to field rumors about whether she had given birth to his love child. She waved off rumors saying, well, who wouldn't have wanted to have Clark Gable's baby? She made lasting friendships with stars from the silence and the talkies. Mabel Norman was the first woman she said she ever really loved. She was so immersed in her father's world of men of the law, she never developed friendships with women until she was an adult. She was close with Marion Davies, her boss's longtime mistress, the Talmadge sisters, Joan Crawford and Jean Harlow, to name a few. Back to that story Adela uses to open her memoir. She starts with the time her boss, William Randolph Hearst, asked her to take part in a club woman's debate. 
Club women of the 1920s were the ladies who lunched, the stalwart members of the social register, who took as much role in the public sphere as they could manage while remaining decorous. Usually it was for charity benefits, reform campaigns, and occasionally discussions on questions of the day. The question of her debate was, is modern woman a failure? Adela's opponent was Alice Ames Winters, whom Adela christened the most formidable woman in America. When Adela tried to beg off and excuse herself to Hearst, saying that she had never heard a debate, let alone participated in one, he wouldn't hear of it. He told her that a debate was nothing more than the closing speeches she often heard her father deliver in front of a jury. Hearst promised to attend with Marion Davies, a queen of silent pictures. So Adela was committed. The debate was publicized in both San Francisco and Los Angeles papers. The room was packed. The Honorable Clubwoman, Mrs. Alice Ames Winters, offered to argue the contrary opinion, that modern woman was not a failure, which does prove something of a surprise. The fearless lady reporter thinks modern woman is a failure? When she took the podium, Adela wavered in resolve and flubbed her message. She died on stage. Allow me to read the passage from her memoir, The Honeycomb. Sure enough, when I mounted the stage at the Ambassador Theater, there he was, John B.T. Campbell himself, northern lights flashing in his eyes, and Mr. Hearst with a bag of jelly beans, and Marion in a decorous black suit. According to an account in the opposition paper, a packed, breathless audience of club women and society leaders was also present. Further, it alleges that young Mrs. St. John's made a rapid series of amazing statements, though it does not mention that this took place only after she was flat on the floor for a count of nine. For there can be no shadow of a doubt that Mrs. Winters won the first round, no possible doubt whatsoever. The stage was footlighted, but I could still see over them. Square bang in the middle of the front row sat the jury of judges selected by the California Federation of Women's Clubs. Mr. Hearst called them sufficiently impressive. As far as I was concerned, they could have shattered me if I hadn't already been in an advanced state of coma. For I recall totally my look at that row showing me Superior Judge Gordon Craig, Dr. Rufus von Kleinsmed, President of the University of Southern California, our senior citizen, Charles Loomis, Dr. Miriam Van Winters, leading expert on women's prisons in the United States, Oda Falconer, best woman lawyer in California, and our leading author, Jean Stratton Porter, just as well as the faces in the second row were blurred momentarily. Under Marquis of Queensbury's rules for debate, I opened. I am aware that I wore a heather tweed suit, which I thought proper for 11 in the morning. And my last conscious recollection, as I got up from one of those folding chairs, was that I'd forgotten to get it pressed and the skirt bagged. Tweed does. Halfway through whatever I was saying, I saw Mr. Hurst was eating jelly beans. Thumbs down. Like Louis B. Mayer if he rubbed his stomach while I was telling him a story. If they liked what you were doing, neither of them did anything but listen. Marion gave me a sort of dying swan wave with one white glove, some coughing, a few rustlings, here and there a sideways glance no better than a shrug. 
I spoke without notes. Both Mr. Hurst and my father eschewed notes. This assumed, however, that you had something to say and knew what it was and could say it or write it without notes. I didn't. Halfway through one look at the jury, I had been long trained to estimate juries, and I knew I was dead. Mrs. Winters approached this matter from a less eccentric angle. With stately tread, she moved to the lectern in a gown of lavender and old lace with pearls and hair marcelled that morning. Moreover, she placed before her a typed manuscript of terror-striking size and neatness, opened it, passed a hand over it, put on gold-rimmed glasses and regarded it, took them off to show us that she wasn't going to read it. It was just there to assure us she had done her homework. If facts, figures, statistics, weighty opinions were required, they were at her fingertips. Surely it can have been condescension to an already fallen foe that sparked her smile, as she said, Madam Chairman, honored judges, ladies and gentlemen, and fellow members of the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and all the ships at sea, I thought, having forgotten all this mumbo-jumbo entirely, if I ever knew it. All Papa ever said was, Your Honor, gentlemen of the jury. I remember what she said. I prayed for the waters of Lethe to close over my head. Nothing came of it. With that superiority that used to characterize Whitey Ford and other Yankee pitchers, Mrs. Winter set forth an intelligent arrangement of fact, the modern woman. Like Columbus discovering America, she claimed this new world for her sex. Entering fresh fields of endeavor, infiltrating new continents of learning, illuminating new layers of art and culture, leavening the races, and by her gentle, firm, and inspired presence, lifting even the marketplace to new heights of honor and honesty. It was good. With an accustomed bow to the uproar of applause, she sat down, and I figured that out of the possible eight votes, she had eight and a half. Then I was jolted by hearing the chairman, obviously repeating, half an hour now allowed for rebuttal, Mrs. St. John's. Rebuttal? What is this rebuttal? I hadn't even butted in the first place. Now I couldn't even lower a horn, much less rebut. Nobody had told me anything about rebuttal. Nil nisi bonum was my motto. Things coagulated to drive me into a sudden, unexpected rage of righteous indignation. The jury! Well, I had seen juries changed before. Faces in that smug audience rushed at me. Estelle Lawton Lindsay, my friend, a newspaper woman who'd gone into politics, been elected to the city council, her eyes were closed, as though she couldn't bear to see what was coming. Like a frenzied fight manager watching his boy murdered, John B.T. Campbell's horror, horror, floated up to me. Nobody but me is allowed to put the whammy on my reporters. What detonated me was the self-satisfied smirk on the face of a lady who has been gathered to her reward for a good many number of years now. She belonged to the Wednesday afternoon musical, the Monday night Republican, the Friday morning, the Mothers for Liberty, the Betsy Ross branch of the DAR, the Lady Elks, the Female Eagles, the Committee for Campaigns to Help Unmarried Mothers, the Southside Den Mothers, as well as the PTA and the League of Women Voters. The only thing she couldn't get into was the Gold Star Mothers. She also had a job playing the organ for weddings and graduations. I knew her well. 
I knew all about her husband, her house, and her children. She lived on the same street as my Auntie Blanche. I got my hair out of my eyes by nearly pulling it out by the roots, walked around in front of that dinky little soapbox on which Mrs. Winter's speech still reposed, and I can still hear, yes I can, the all-out shout, like Mike Quill or Amy Semple McPherson, of my opening sentence. I said, All right, all right, you asked for it. From where I stand, I can put my finger on five modern women. I know where their husbands were last night, and they don't. From where I stand, I can tell one woman where her kid daughter was last night before last. She was drunk on the floor at the ship cafe. A man entertainer went by and shoved her with his toe and said, Charity ass, loud enough for everybody to hear, and they all laughed. I can tell another woman I see from here that her husband is leading a double life, and he likes his other family better. That other wife isn't a modern goddamn bit. I can see another well-known club woman and society leader on whom I can smell the whitewash. If she's interested in anything besides being modern, I can tell her why her secret bottle of whiskey gets empty so soon. Her 15-year-old son drinks, too. Well, boys and girls, by this time, as you can well imagine, the audience, composed of club women and society leaders out front, was frozen in total, incredulous, non-coughing silence. No wiggling to ease the bored fanny. Nobody was looking at each other. They didn't dare. I didn't just say stop. No, no, no. I said stop, look, and listen. I don't say you mustn't go forward into great usefulness and help make a bigger, better world. I just beg you on my bended knees to heed the big red sign, the waving red lanterns that say danger, danger ahead, road under construction. I don't care if my banker plays golf every afternoon. I don't care if I hear rumors that he's up to a bit of a gay fellow evenings. If he is tending to his business, looking after my money, I never have much. I need it. His first duty is to take the care of my dough he agreed when he became a banker. Your first duty is to your children, your home, your husband, the sanity of your family. No nation can continue half-slave and half-free, I agree. Nor can it continue if the slave who has been emancipated only uses that freedom to get a little more dough to buy herself some silk stockings, or to gather success for herself, or to roll in the same gutter with men. Throughout history, throughout all civilizations, a nation has been as strong and as sound and as happy as the family. The family is the foundation of all that happiness we seek, the safety we long for, the love and faith we have cherished, the first unit. The man is the head of the house, but the foundation of the family is the character and joy of the mother. If the modern woman has tended to her own business, okay. If she hasn't, then she must be honestly, fearlessly, figure out whether she wants to sip bootleg scotch and be charity ass. I know, it's vulgar, facts often are, and that's what you're called all too often. Those very words, if you don't mind your husband's being a frequenter of Pearl Morton. Now there's a woman who'd have no truck with this modern women's freedom. Mrs. Morton has been a good friend of mine, and she agrees with me that the modern woman is a failure. Mrs. Morton belongs to the oldest profession, one that has always been open to women. She once said to me, no man who is happy at home has ever entered my house. They often, Mrs. Morton said to me, come to my house because nobody is home at their own. 
They come because they are lonely, and that's the truth. Business, Mrs. Morton told me, has been very good ever since the modern woman came into being. I suppose I had been thinking partly of Dolly, who once had lived in Pearl Morton's house and who had been my father's mistress for a little while. I knew all too well how lonely my father had been. By the time I finished with that, I was sweating. I couldn't see the face of the woman who'd started me off on this anymore. She was looking down. Keep on the way you're going at the moment, and in the coming generation, you will have freed. We will need a new Diogenes to stalk the earth, searching for a happy woman. That's much of what I said I remember. The rest is now direct quotes from national evening newspaper coverage. Mrs. St. John said, The women of today are miserable in their new so-called freedom. They know it's built on selfishness and indulgence. The entire object of existence, a right given us along with liberty by our own national declaration, has always been to find happiness, and happiness can only be obtained through success and living. The girl of today has the opportunity of earning her own living and thereby becoming independent of men. As a result, she now thinks she can refuse to take the marriage relationship seriously. She's been down for so many centuries, under sometimes admittedly unfavorable conditions, that now a path has been opened that leads to life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, she refuses to any self-control or caution. Not only is modern woman a failure, but she must accept 90% of the blame for that failure. Woman is sacrificing the tremendous privilege of home, social and religious culture, and the education of her children to run under false gods. The way women are handling the gift of freedom at this minute has to lead directly to the destruction of a sane and normal civilization. We'd better get out of this sink of liberty into license and get back on the road. Mrs. Winters had a rebuttal, too. Then there I was, waiting for another jury. I had spent so much of my life doing that with Papa. I didn't dare look at anybody. I just sat as still as I could. Mrs. Winters was perfectly at ease. Obviously, it had never so much as occurred to her that she could lose this one. But she did. This scene bears the hallmarks of her reporter's instincts. When she floundered at the podium like a fish out of water, Adela went straight for the society lady's weak spots. She put her finger on the one thing that women like Alice Ames Winter feared most, scandal. Adela won their debate by attacking below the garter belt. She impugned the modern woman's stature as wife and mother. The characterization charity ass, along with the accusation that their homes were in shambles, with children run wild and men and women bed-hopping, the modern woman did not stand a chance. Adela narrates the debate as though it were a prize fight or the trial of the century. As a seasoned reporter, she knew how to transport a reader and create emphasis to show us what was important down to the smallest detail, like how her tweed suit bagged and when she stood up to take the podium or the way Hearst nibbled on jelly beans while she slowly crashed and burned. She admits how burnt up she became by the smug satisfaction of Alice Ames Winters, so readers might assume that her desire to win the debate had less to do with the question regarding modern women and just taking this society dame down off her high horse. 
When I read Adela chastise the modern woman, I don't necessarily take her as a lap cat of patriarchy, especially since she was hardly a demure, shrinking violet. Her hellfire speech to the ladies' clubs made me recall Anita Luce's horror when she found Zelda Fitzgerald filling little Scotty's bottle with gin so the infant would sleep through the night. There's freedom, and then there's losing the run of yourself altogether. Adela didn't want women to open themselves to censure and set the whole damn cause back a generation. One of Adela's best screenplays continues in a long tradition of the American sentimental novel from the 18th century. It's worth taking a few moments to situate Adela Roger St. John's work in the history of American letters. Adele's name appears in bold letters on the title card for The Red Kimona from 1925. Adele's heroine Gabrielle, played by Priscilla Bonner, is the 20th century version of women led to ruin by men who have no interest other than their sexual gratification. When I watched The Red Kimona, I couldn't help but think back to the doctoral seminar I once took in the early American novel. In Kathy Davidson's landmark study, Revolution and the Word, The Rise of the Novel in America, she examines the role that sentimental novels had in shaping the new nation after the Revolutionary War. Davidson recovered 100 novels published in the New Republic and identifies the novel of seduction as the most dominant theme. Novels such as The Power of Sympathy by William Hill Brown, published in 1789 and billed as the first American novel. Charlotte Temple, published in America in 1794 by Susanna Rousen. And The Coquette, published by Hannah Webster Foster from 1797, shifted the power of public opinion away from men in power in favor of the women they victimized. All three novels were reprinted in dozens of editions and were massive bestsellers for decades. The Power of Sympathy, for example, was based on a true story. In Boston in 1788, Perez Morton was a wealthy, Harvard-educated scion who became part of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts. He had also seduced and impregnated his sister-in-law, Fanny Apthorpe. Disgraced and distraught and pressured by her father to name the man who fathered her child, Fanny Apthorpe took her own life. Although Morton committed adultery and incest by 18th century standards, not to mention rape, he was publicly vouchsafed by powerful men such as former Governor James Bowden and future President John Adams. As is often the case, men have their civic virtue protected by other men who label the woman mentally unsound, as Bowden and Adams did for Perez Morton. William Hill Brown was one of Fanny Apthorpe's neighbors. Brown did not accept the official version of the story that the woman was to blame. He was only 23 when he wrote The Power of Sympathy, which changed public opinion with more force than a ruling from the bench or the Sunday pulpit. Charlotte Temple follows her lover to America and then is left abandoned, penniless, and pregnant. The heroine of The Coquette is a woman of society who laments, Alas, I am undone when she gives birth to a child outside marriage. As Kathy Davidson makes clear, the novels of seduction shifted public empathy away from men in power and toward the women they used and discarded. 
Moreover, the novels contributed to a dramatic rise in literacy rates, especially among women in the new nation. The literacy rates rose in conjunction with a decline in birth rates. Once women familiarized themselves with plots of seduction, they were to some degree inoculated against falling for a rake's maneuvers. Kathy Davidson's project traces the importance of the novel amidst the Industrial Revolution and the early decades of the American Republic. During the 1920s, silent pictures had as much influence as novels had in the 18th century in teaching women valuable lessons and shaping public attitudes about sexual double standards. The Red Kimona, produced in 1925 by Dorothy Davenport, who was billed as Mrs. Wallace Reed, built on her status as the widow of Wallace Reed, a screen idol who died a tragic death from a drug overdose at an early age. Her project continued in the campaign for moral reform. Dorothy Arzner, who became a prolific director, developed the story from which Adela wrote the screenplay. The three women created a modern feminist fairy tale full of lurid dangers more ferocious than a wolf in grandma's clothing. Priscilla Bonner's Gabrielle does what many women have done throughout history. She escapes an unhappy home life by running off with the first man who asks. Her father, played by Ty Power Sr., is abusive and cruel. He doesn't have any parting wisdom for his daughter when she announces she's leaving for New Orleans with a bow. He says he's glad he has one less mouth to feed. Installed in a dingy room in New Orleans, Gabrielle soon learns that she's not going to be a bride. She's going to earn her money on her back. She wears the red wrapper, the kimono from the picture's title, as a mark of shame, a full-body letter A. She stares at herself in the mirror and sees herself in bridal array that she will never actually wear. The kimono appears in dazzling red technicolor. In one of the most horrifying scenes, men who look like gigantic apes with arms that nearly drag on the dirt paw and bellow at her door for entry. The ogres look like they eat children for breakfast. Unlike the damsels from the colonial period, Gabrielle does not kill herself or die of grief and shame. Instead, she kills her pimp boyfriend. The jury fails to convict her because of the blameless figure she cuts as bespoiled womanhood. She endured the worst and will be rewarded with her freedom and a better man who treats her well. Adela's script trains a gimlet eye on what modern narratives of progress and personal freedom often mean for individual women rendered vulnerable and cast adrift. For every so-called liberated flapper, there stood in her shadow women abused and consigned to history's dustbin. The Red Kimona is included in the new box set Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers by Kino Lorber. You need it for your collection. One of Adela's best novels takes a more positive view of the chances for women's autonomy and happiness in the modern era. The single standard, published in 1928, was adapted to the screen by Josephine Lovett the following year in 1929 and stars Greta Garbo. After the single standard, Garbo made only one more silent picture for MGM in the same year, which was The Kiss. Joan Crawford was originally chosen for the picture before Garbo stepped into the role. 
As much as I love Joan, I don't think she was ready for this kind of role in 1929. Five years later, for sure, but not at this stage in her career. The novel's heroine, Arden Stewart, feels like a role tailor-made for Greta Garbo. The casual elegance of a heroine committed to a life of her own terms, an outright rejection of prevailing social norms steeped in sexual double standards, calls to mind the Swedish Sphinx on every page. There's also the character's obsessive swimming habit, and the way she makes trousers look more glamorous than a bias-cut evening gown by Adrian. This is one of Garbo's best pictures. When she furrows her brow and her face clouds over, she is absolutely mesmerizing. No one was better at making you see a woman think on screen. Garbo plays Adela's heroine, Arden Stewart. She is one of the many bright young things who shimmered in novels of the jazz age. Unlike the satire that Anita Luce crafted for Lorelei and Dorothy in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Arden has more in common with a Fitzgerald heroine. In the novel, Arden has a series of torrid love affairs beginning at the age 16 when she meets a reckless aviator who was traumatized by the First World War. He meets his tragic end in an auto wreck rather than going down in flames in one of his aerial missions. Arden believes that women should have the same rights as men to lead their lives unencumbered by society's double standard. She boldly wants a single standard. She wants to live dangerously, honestly, passionately. In the novel, out one night in a speakeasy dive, slumming it in the San Francisco's Tenderloin District with other society folks, she draws the attention of a man sitting at another table. In the film, Arden meets Packy, played by Nils Ister, in an art gallery, but in the novel, he gazes at her without Arden noticing. He's fascinated by her because she sits at the table with her head thrown back, lost in her own thoughts. He later sketches her profile and puts it on exhibit. That's how you know you're reading a good novel by a woman writer, when women are made desirable by choosing their own reverie rather than amusing some man at the table. Later in the novel, after they have gotten to know each other, Packy gives her good arguments for why she should run away with him on a, a cruise of the South Seas in his ship, The All Alone. He reasons that no one will really ostracize her for carrying on a love affair. They might be jealous of her for doing what they wish they had done, but the same doors will always be open for her when she returns. And his logic says that she'll do something that, like that eventually. She might turn down the first invitation to run off, but surely she will accept the third or fourth, so why not go away with him now? When Arden objects that it would scandalize her mother, Packy retorts that her mother will love it. All of her friends will turn up to support her and shake their heads over ungrateful daughters who are just like their fathers. Things are changing, he tells her. I really like the scene in the novel, but I think it plays better on film without using it. Instead, Garbo stands at the dock to see Packy off, and then without any persuasion, she decides at the last minute to join him and she jumps on board. She decides on her own to throw caution to the wind for passion. Garbo and Nils Ister look so divine together. His eyes look as cool and calm as the blue water they sail on, even in black and white. They both boast rude health, glamour, and the promise of generating so much heat between them they could power the ship around the world. 
On screen, they wage a lively competition over who wore the best pair of crisp trousers. In woman's pictures, we know to expect that even the swoon merchants are inconstant lovers. So too the story goes with Packy. In both the novel and the film, Packy explains that their love is too perfect to last, so he must part from her. He takes her back to San Francisco so that he can hold the perfect memory of their love burning in his memory. As an artist, he thinks suffering is inevitable and probably necessary. In the novel, Art enjoys a string of lovers trying to fill the void that Packy left. She marries her brother's best friend after his father scuppers the family business. She tries to be sensible and has a baby. She takes up with a gorgeous actor. The film, no doubt, due to the production code of 1927, The Don'ts and Be Carefuls, shaves off the extra lovers so that Arden can avoid being a fallen woman. But in the novel, she's been put through the ringer by men by the time she's 20. Adela makes plain the heartbreaks that waited for women who felt they shouldn't be treated any differently than men. Like it or not, living in a man's world means double standards are the norm. In the novel, Arden receives a letter from her wayward father. He tells her that although he disappeared years ago, he's heard of her story in passing. He warns her not to run off with her lover and leave her son. Her father warns her that as long as women are mothers, there can be no single standard. She may be able to withstand men's judgment, but she will not be able to endure what her son thinks of her when he grows up. Adela has no interest in punishing her heroine or watching her suffer unduly. Even if she eventually learns the limits of the single standard, that there could never be one so long as women are mothers, it still gives women more options than they had previously. First, Adela's novel shows women that they can sow their wild oats, just like men do. When Packy told Arden that no society doors would be closed to her for pursuing a love affair, he was right. She was not made an outcast when she returns amidst wagging tongues. Women don't have to wait until their wedding night. The modern woman doesn't have to make her virginity an issue. The terms that Arden must finally accept is that she must sacrifice her own happiness for her sons. She can risk the poor opinion of any man, but not the thought of what her adult son would say. The bargain that Arden strikes tells women that they may have their flings before they settle down, Or if that doesn't seem like a fair trade, they can opt out of motherhood and leave convention behind as they sail off on the horizon. It's not too shabby. Adela Rogers St. John's presents options for women other than tragedy or ruin. But when I finished Adela's novel, I saw her in a baggy tweed suit in front of a ladies club assembled for debate. She doesn't mince her words. Mothers have first responsibility to their children. The novel's message softens in the film, probably because in the film, Garbo makes the choice rather than receive instructions from a man. In the picture, when she decides to stay and not run off with Packy, her hair is extra curly to match her toddler's sons, so they look in perfect harmony. And Johnny Mac Brown looks relieved that he didn't have to go and shoot himself in the woods in a stage hunting accident. In the best scene in the film that isn't included in the book, Garbo, as Arden Stewart, saunters along in the rain, lost in thought. Some man appears and pesters her about carrying her umbrella. 
He really just wants her umbrella, but he acts like any run-of-the-mill sex pest. Garbo tells him firmly that she's walking alone in the rain because she wants to. He insists. Finally, to shake him, she steps out from underneath the umbrella and walks off in the bucketing rain as though it were the warm glare of the summer solstice. His attention is incommodious, not the downpour. Then she walks into the gallery and meets Packy Cannon. I could watch the umbrella scene on a loop. Adrian wrote about designing for Garbo in the single standard. In Howard Guttner's outstanding study, Gowns by Adrian, the MGM years, 1928 to 1941, he wanted to minimize the difference in height between Garbo and Dorothy Sebastian. Adrian wrote, The tall girl accentuates the great difference between dressing a woman for the screen and dressing her for private life. Take, for example, our dress problems with Miss Garbo in her new picture, The Single Standard. Dorothy Sebastian, who is in the same picture, is several inches shorter, and as they have several important scenes together, Miss Garbo's clothes must not have too much length of line. Fortunately, in this picture, the type Miss Garbo is playing, an athletic, youthful, outdoor type, makes possible the horizontal line that counteracts her height. Applied to other types of dresses, this would ruin the unadulterated line that is so charming on a tall girl. Her sport jackets are cut square, as are the skirts and even her flat-heeled shoes. There is even an abruptness in the line of her hat, which makes a series of cross-cutting lines. This makes the eye falter on the way down from her head to her feet, giving the illusion of a much shorter person. Only Adrian could make a woman's height sound like a liability and get away with it. Watch out also in this picture for Anita Garvin in a bit part as Packy's jealous girlfriend in the gallery scene. Anita wears a very dark and close-fitting cloche hat. When she turns sideways to remonstrate with Packy, we can't really see her face, but the camera does catch her earrings that jostle about to give a sort of peckish quality that suggests she's trying to henpeck the dreamy guy in spotless trousers. Anita Garvin was part of the first Hal Roach comedy shorts that teamed two women before Zazu Pitts and Thelma Todd. The other half of the duo was Marion Byron. Look for them in a pair of tights, a short from 1929. It's next level funny. You can find it on YouTube. You can watch The Single Standard on that Russian website if you Google the title and year with ok.ru. Usually, when the subject turns to powerful women in Hollywood, our attention focuses on stars who helped influence on screen. Women in the silence, such as Mabel Norman, Mary Pickford, Gloria Swanson, Paula Negri, or in the talkies, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, Mae West, Barbara Stanwyck, to name a few. Behind the scenes, as a writer, Adela benefited from a greater longevity than women who depended upon their image. She also sold stories to Hollywood that were developed into scripts by other writers. Chief among them is a classic that seems destined to be remade forevermore. Her story, What Price Hollywood, from 1932, was the basis for A Star is Born, made in 1937, and remade in 1954, 1976, and 2018. 
Adela's original story is still the best because it doesn't rely on a romantic relationship between a woman whose star rises as her mentor's crashes to ruins. In Adela's version, what matters is the work, the craft, the art. When Constance Bennett blows her screen test and then spends all night on the stairs trying to figure out what went wrong, it's one of my favorites in film history. Adela also wrote the story for That Brennan Girl from 1946. It's a standout for showing how grueling and boring motherhood can be, which is pretty subversive in the post-war celebration of the nuclear family. Adela Rogers St. John's told stories that resonate with women's lived experiences in the 20th century, but also continue to remain completely relevant and compelling today. She didn't just celebrate glamour and the Hollywood fantasy. She reminded women how hard life could be and how many obstacles they faced. Women are still used and abused by men as they were in Gabrielle's experience in the Red Kimono. And we still have nothing close to the single standard for men and women. Even something as basic as a red carpet premiere or public performance can make this clear. Like, say, the recent video of Beyonce on stage with Ed Sheeran. The absolute state of him, looking like he just rolled out of bed next to a goddess who exhibits flawless glamour from head to toe. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not help a dame out and leave a nice review on iTunes? Join me next time for episode 35 in January 2019 when I talk about Joan Crawford in Above Suspicion from 1943. Thanks very much.